Hey everyone, welcome to Cigarette Burns. Today we break down the Oscar nominations, bring you five movie reviews, discuss John Favreau's Chef and why Hollywood needs more of these films, interview a professional chef to see how close Favreau got to real life, and lastly bring you some smoking hot recommendations. So Jed, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm really excited about Chef, one of my favorite films of the last ever. So this is this is one of those movies. I don't know about you. I've had to tell people like watch this film because people didn't see it, and it is one of my favorite movies that I've seen in the last five six years. Mine as well. And you know what? I honestly defer to Billy Bob when I give this one a rating. I give it a uh, a ten, a ten, a fucking ten. That's right, Billy Bob. It is a ten out of ten. <laughs> you know, one thing about Billy Bob: rarely is he wrong. Especially when it comes to film. Film and stripping, he knows what's going on. (laughs) Well, he came to work. (laughs) So before we get to Chef, uh, we would really be doing a disservice to our listener if we did not get into the Oscar nominations. So why why don't you give me... Your three surprises, maybe some snubs, and then who you think is guaranteed to bring home some some hardware. All right. For the Oscars, honestly, surprised by Black Panther getting a Best Picture nomination and First Reform not. Um, I still think it's a boring movie, but I'm going to move on from that. Sam Rockwell getting a Best <laughs> Supporting Actor nomination. I understand he won the Academy Award, but still, it doesn't mean you need to give him a Best Supporting Actor nomination again. That role was, is not worthy of that. Bradley Cooper not getting nominated for Best Director, that surprised me quite a bit. Um, Some snubs, the biggest one is Ethan Hawke not getting nominated for Best Actor for First Reformed. That's bullshit. Can't talk about that one anymore. (laughs) Just bullshit. Uh, Paul Schrader not getting nominated for Best Director. The way he directed that film is just stellar. People will be referencing that for years. Barry Jenkins not getting Best Director for Beale Street. I haven't seen Beale Street, but Paul Thomas Anderson said it was amazing and the direction was amazing especially the close-ups, so he deserves that just on that alone. Uh, I got some guarantees. Best foreign film is definitely going to be Roma. Best original song is definitely going to be Shallows from A Star Is Born. I know, easy way out there. And Regina King going to get Best Supporting Actress, despite her not even getting nominated at the SAGs. Can you believe she didn't get nominated at the SAGs? I was floored by that. Absolutely floored. Unbelievable. My uh, takeaway, though, for the Oscars overall is that Rami got nominated for Best Actor. And, you know, it's not a big surprise. I'm just really happy for the guy because I've enjoyed Mr. Robot. And he was the only good thing about Need for Speed. So (laughs) there you go. What about you, man? What do you got for the Oscars? Well, I think my surprises uh, echo yours a little bit. First, Bohemian Rhapsody getting Best Picture nomination is the worst nomination I may have ever seen. You know, we've had... Movies in the past that won Best Picture that were controversial, Crash or Shakespeare in Love, but I've never seen a worse and more unworthy nomination. So that was a huge surprise to me. Pavel Pavlikovsky getting nominated for Best Director for Cold War over Bradley Cooper, uh, along like what you said, I I really can't believe uh, that that happened. Then Ballad of Buster Scruggs got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Not a ton of people uh, were in love with this movie. You had people who loved it and you had people who hated it, but this wasn't one of those Coen brothers films that everybody was in love with. So I was surprised to see that get nominated. Uh, as far as snubs go, you know, yours were a lot of first reformed minor, a lot of first man, uh, Justin Hurwitz not getting nominated for best score and Damien Chazelle not getting nominated for best director because 
while I don't necessarily know that First Man was the best film of the year, technically speaking, it was spectacular. And but the score of the film, you and I saw it together. We were floored by the music in that film. So uh, those were some surprises for me, including the fact that the best documentary did not nominate Won't You Be My Neighbor, which between that and RBG, I mean, people were talking about those documentaries constantly. And Won't You Be My Neighbor was a very good one. And for it not to get nominated, I was a little surprised with that. Uh, as far as guarantees, um, I think Olivia Coleman was a guarantee for Best Actress, but the way that the awards are going, it looks like that might be more and more Glenn Close's award to lose. Uh, supporting actor Mahershala Ali's taking that home, absolutely deserves it for Green Book. And along with you, Best Foreign Film for Roma, guaranteed lock. And my favorite takeaway, just I think we can all as film lovers look at the fact that Spike Lee finally got his first Oscar nomination for Black Klansman, uh, Best Director. It's about time. My God. The guy did Do the Right Thing. The guy did Malcolm X. We finally got him a nomination for Best Director, and I'm very excited for Spike Lee. So that's, for me, uh, you know, the Oscar nominations. There were a lot more surprises than I thought there would be. What do you think? Yeah, a lot of surprises for me, too. Um, And the way some of the awards have gone recently, I'm just, I really don't know what to expect at the Oscars. You know, I know you have Olivia Coleman as a a lock for Best Actress, but I'm really thinking Glenn Close is going to, is going to get that one these days. The way the award season's gone, I can't really disagree with you. Yeah. So what about uh, any movies you've been seeing lately? As like last time, you've seen a few more than I have, but I did see two that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, The world went nuts for the Firefest documentaries, the Hulu versus Netflix, which one should you watch? I watched the Netflix one. Uh, I give it a five out of 10. It's fine. It's acceptable. Uh, It was made by the company that was hired to promote the Fire Festival, so we know those guys are trustworthy and always tell the right story. So after you learn that piece of information, it's kind of hard to take everything about that particular documentary uh, as gospel. But (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) The the thing that really disappointed me was I don't think it focused enough on the Bahamanian workers who really got screwed over. I don't really care about the kid who took – 15 grand out of his trust fund to go to the Bahamas to watch a music festival. I don't care that he got screwed over. I don't really care that he sued through his family's lawyer and got a $5 million judgment. What I care about are the hundreds of workers and people on this Island that were basically using this as a way to get, you know, to the next rent payment or just to make some money so they could keep living and they didn't get paid at all. And that was a story I wish I would have told more. So five out of 10 there. I heard the Hulu one's better, but you know, I don't think after this one, I'm really going to spend the time watching another one. Um, the other movie I watched was about a Buster Scruggs. I mentioned that in the best adapted screenplay surprise nomination. I do think it's deserving though. It's six vignettes, uh, that are absolutely Coen brothers through and through. You've got some very darkly humorous ones. You've got some straight up funny ones, a lot of religious undertones in some of the vignettes. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson was phenomenal. He actually plays Buster Scruggs in the very first story. It's probably the strongest of the vignettes. James Franco's a little out of place. There's a hauntingly sad uh, story with Liam Neeson and Harry Melling, where Harry Melling plays this, uh, no arms and no legs, disabled person who goes town to town performing Shakespeare. And that's a really interesting and sad story with him and Liam Neeson. But uh, I give it a seven and a half out of 10. I thought of the six, I thought five of the vignettes were fantastic. And I suggest everyone get out there and watch it. 
I got a quick question for you, actually, about that. When has James Franco not been out of place, in your opinion? I was a huge fan when he started cutting off his body parts in 127 (laughs) hours. Other than that, you don't want to come to me for positive James Franco feedback. Uh, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Maybe, maybe not. I really don't know. But man, do I not think he's good. (laughs) This has been Hot Takes with Cole. (laughs) Oh, we have our first segment. I'm very excited. (laughs) I hope I do it proud. So how about you? What have you been watching? So I saw Glass, which I'm giving a five and a half out of 10. I really expected a lot more. um, But then when I started to think about it after seeing Unbreakable, which I loved, and then seeing Split, which I really, really enjoyed as well, kind of wasn't sure where he would go with it. But wherever he went, which was what this movie was, was not the place to go because this movie looked under budget, pretty boring at times, and it kind of felt like a cover band that was actually the original members of the original band doing a show and just, I don't know, fell flat for me. Sad ending to that trilogy. Uh, Aquaman I saw, which I give a four and a half out of ten. It was uh, better than I expected, actually, even at a four and a half out of ten, but that's mainly because Jason Momoa. It's one of the better DCEU entries, not saying a lot, Um, about 40 minutes too long, some real cringeworthy dialogue, and there's a scene in Italy that's basically from a romantic comedy that just stands out because it's from a movie that was not made. I don't know what the fuck movie it was from, but it was from (laughs) something else. And then I also saw The Wife, which I give a 6.8 out of 10 to. Glenn Close owns that movie. Jonathan Price is really good as her husband, but she doesn't break once. Um, she is her character in every scene. She is the embodiment of it. The plot is pretty telegraphed from, from the start, but it's okay. It's not really trying to hide that. It's a dialogue-heavy film, but I expected the writing to be a little better given that. Um, and then Christian Slater is is good, and he's in a rare subdued uh, role for him. He's usually not uh, in those roles where he doesn't command the uh, the screen and the attention. So I, I like seeing him like that. So... Those are the movies I saw. I'm going to try to get out to the theater and see some more. Um, But yeah, that's about it for reviews for me. Sounds good. And I got to tell you, with respect to Christian Slater, I'm having a a, I'm a huge fan of his sort of comeback here through Mr. Robot. And you're starting to see him in some smaller, more subtle roles. And I think that's where he really excels. So, you know, good to see him coming back a little bit. Yeah, I'm really hoping for that Cuffs sequel. I really want that (laughs) to happen. Okay, guys, are you ready? It's time to make a stew in the movie Chef. What is this madness? This carne asada, check it out. Wow. Chef Big Dog up all night cooking. Shut up and taste this, some amuse douche. Come here, guys. Look at that. You like it? Yeah. yeah. We're going to cook like this. We're being reviewed by the most important critic in the city. Now suddenly you're going to be an artist. Well, be an artist on your own time. It's my restaurant. Do you threaten to fire me now? I'm telling you what I'm prepared to do if you don't cook my menu. It's up. It's up. The review's out. I didn't like what they wrote about you. I don't like it either. Who cares? I do, because I could have done better. I should have cooked food that I was going to cook. Hey, 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 what are you doing? Don't do it. What What are you writing? Chef. It's out there now, bro. What happens? Why would you do you that? You can't take that back. Dad, did you post anything since last night? You gotta be kidding me. Wow. You realize how many people have read this? You're trending, bro. You're never going to be happy cooking for someone else. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna laugh. 
Tony, Carl's got a taco truck. For real? <laughs> I was so jealous when I heard your voice. I was like, that's what I want to do. Hey, you ever try andouille sausage? No. It's spicy. You like spicy? No. Nah, it's not so spicy. Come on. Hey, so you heard us at the outset. Jed and I are gigantic fans of this film. Uh, this is one of the Hollywood movies you don't see enough of anymore, and we'll probably get into that a little bit more later. But it's a classic three-act, easy-to-follow film that just excels in every single aspect of the film. It starts with our hero, Carl, who's a chef. He's on top of the world. He has a very popular restaurant in Los Angeles, and he's a popular chef, and you know everything is going his way, and you're going to follow him on top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain, and we're going to climb back up it with him. So, uh, Jed, why don't you take us through that first part where you know he is the man. He is definitely the man. Carl knows how to cook. He knows how to command a fucking kitchen like none other. Um, and he's so passionate about what he's doing. It's art to him, just like any good artist. It's not about, you know, the money for him. It's about the creation. And he's kind of in a little bit of a rut here because the restaurant he works at, very successful. They've given him all the tools he's asked for, but they won't really let him change the menu and experiment. And that's what an artist thrives on is being able to change things up a little bit. And so in, in the beginning few scenes here, we see him, He's going to the farmer's market. He's taking out his his kid, you know, spending time with him, but not really connecting with him because he's so concerned about his art, which is food, and this review that's coming up. And he really wants this review to go well because this is a reviewer that back when Carl worked in Miami, uh, saw him as one of the, you know, the burgeoning stars of the of the food world. So he's very, very concerned and nervous about this. And like I said, the relationship with the son suffers in the in the first part of this, and you see why because he's so passionate about about cooking. Um, so basically, the beginning sets up that he's going to get reviewed. We don't know how it's going to go. We hope it goes well, and then see the the thing that I think is spectacular about this film is while it takes us through what I think could be considered a predictable storyline, the filmmaking becomes so. Uh, apparently efficient that Favreau starts using these scenes that don't have a lot of dialogue, but they have either the perfect song or the perfect score or the perfect looks between the actors. And it, it, it conveys so much information, whether it's between him and Sophia Vergara, his ex-wife or him and Scarlett Johansson, the hostess at uh, his restaurant that they're sort of dating. It doesn't necessarily, you know, they don't put labels on it for film's uh, sake, but Favreau as a director and a writer of this film decides, here's the information you need to know. And then gets rid of all of the irrelevant stuff that unfortunately gets into way too many screenplays. And that allows for a really quick setup. You understand who the characters are. You understand the world they're in and you're along for the ride almost immediately. Yeah, there's a version of this movie where the opening credits show you everything that's happened in his life leading up to this point. Now, do you need that? No, not at all. Does it add anything to the film? No, but it's it would beat your head over with, hey, he's been really successful, he got divorced, he has a kid. You need that information when you need it. You don't need all of that up front because the movie does such a great job of showing you that and showing you the dynamics, and it's not keeping any secrets at all. You learn everything about all the characters. 
And I mean, that's what makes this opening sequence just so great. It's uh, it's just so well done. And I mean, as you can predict, that review comes out and it's not great. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, before we get to the review, one of the things I really like about the movie, and, and it's because I've known people who work in, uh, you know, kitchens and who have been chefs, is it is the most authentic movie set in a kitchen that I can remember seeing. Because th- there was this sort of stretch where No Reservations came out, Burnt came out right along at the same time as Chef, and they were just absurdly bad. And the the worlds they portrayed just weren't realistic. This one. knocks it out of the park, whether it be from Carl's intensity by himself in the kitchen trying to create dishes to John Leguizamo and Bobby Cannavale as his line cook and sous chef and sort of the rush that they get when they get in the kitchen. That really brought to life this entire world and gave it a a realism that I didn't see in other movies that are sort of using restaurants as set pieces. I also really like Dustin Hoffman as the restaurant owner. He's perfect, and nobody, none of these characters becomes over the top. Yeah, I I agree with you 100% because... I just want you mentioned John Leguizamo and I, he plays Martin and he's so fucking perfect in this movie, which he normally is. And he just nails this from the get go. You understand who his character is, where his, what his place is in the kitchen. He's he's barking at the people like, whose bacon is this? Who you you better you better grab your ankles when I come over there because you watch the fuck out. It's just great, great line deliveries by him. And you like all the characters. um, from the get-go, you you like Carl, you like Martin, you like Tony, played by by Bobby Cannavale, you like all them, and Dustin Hoffman is not, as you said, an over-the-top asshole, but he's you understand where he's coming from too. So these characters are rounded out, even in the short scenes you see them in, because Dustin Hoffman, his bottom line is he wants customers in the restaurant. The restaurant is doing well; they're making money. He doesn't care if the menu's been the same for five years because food is not an art to him; it's a business. But it's an art to Carl. So that review, I mean, well, this line from the review is just kind of crazy when he reads it. Over the last decade, Carl Casper has somehow managed to transform himself from the edgiest chef in Miami to the needy aunt that gives you $5 every time you see her in hopes that you will like her, but instead causes you to shrink from her cloying embrace, which threatens to smother you in her saggy, moist cleavage. The signature app intended to impress the country club brunch crowd is the caviar egg. A shirt egg topped with a dollop of caviar is an excuse for the chef to overcharge us for his insecurity and lack of imagination. Carl Casper can best be summed up by the first bite of his needy and yet by some miracle also irrelevant chocolate lava cake. Casper didn't even have the courage to undercook the cake, thus curiously lacking its signature molten center. This sad dessert is emblematic of Carl Casper's disappointing new chapter. His dramatic weight gain can only be explained by the fact that he must be eating all the food sent back to the kitchen. Two stars. Yeah, I mean, that that pretty much sums it up. That would destroy me if that was uh, what someone said about mine. Yeah, that's demoralizing. That that is just that cuts to the core of who Carl is as a person. It cuts to his vanity and he shows it. And one of the things that that review does is it exposes all of his insecurities in 
the paragraph that Carl read. And the way Favreau plays it, it's, it's so subtle, but it is so intense. And everybody in this movie was cast perfectly, including John Favreau, who I think this is the best he's been easily since Swingers. I personally think this is a better performance than Swingers, but every single actor or actress in this film is right in the pocket where they are most set up to succeed. This is definitely his most personal role uh, to date. And I don't know that you can get more personal than this because this comes from a very, very personal place for him in terms of I know he went through something and that's what this art of this film was generated from. And I'm going to get into that a little later. But that's why I think this movie is so, so well done is because it comes from such a personal, personal place. And it's it's just it exposes a lot of stuff that he's been through and telling it in through the eyes of a chef and using that as a storyline, I just thought was really an intelligent way to go and really works well. Right. Oh, a hundred percent. And one of the things, as you were mentioning with Dustin Hoffman's uh, restaurant owner character, who's really just concerned with, look, I've invested monetarily in this business. I pay for salaries. I pay for napkins. I pay for your kitchen. I do all of these things. I need to recoup that investment. He does it in a way that you understand where he's coming from. And the problem with that is, is when you have a true artist and you have a true, uh, you know, financial backer, they're going to butt heads. And I'm not trying to be pun heavy, but it really does boil over in the scene where they're just absolutely (laughs) going at it, you know. Um, And after Carl sort of, thanks to his son, accidentally invites uh, this critic to come back via Twitter for a new uh, meal to, to give him a new review... This scene where Carl and Reva, the restaurant owner, kind of go to almost blows and Carl just quits. Carl just up and walks out. And that is an extraordinarily realistic uh, fight. And to to let you know a little bit more about how realistic Jon Favreau uh, was in this film, we have a quick interview with my best friend Jordan Ganshaw. We grew up together. He actually went to culinary school, was a professional chef for years, and let's have him tell you what it's like. All right. We'd like to welcome in the best man at my wedding, but most importantly, a professional chef who, thanks to him, I was able to eat a lot of food I couldn't afford at the time. Jordan Ganshaw. How's it going, buddy? Not too bad. How are you? Oh, you know, living the dream. Up early, but excited to actually see you and talk to you for the first time and like three years. I know. So Jed and I are reviewing the movie Chef, and so I called you to talk to you about it, and while you were explaining everything, it dawned on me, why not just get you to come on with us, because having me explain it's not going to make any sense. So before we get into it, can you just sort of give everybody your culinary bona fides? Okay. Well, I don't know what that means, but I'll, (laughs) I'll, I'll let you know where I've been. And where where I come from. So uh, I went to culinary school in Chicago at Le Cordon Bleu. Uh, and then I've worked in various restaurants in Illinois and Texas. And then transitioned into healthcare food service uh, when we lived in Kansas City and then in Connecticut. And uh, at, w- at which time I decided it was time for a change. And now I don't do that anymore. But I loved it while I was in it. And when you started, you actually got up the chain pretty quick because when you and I were living together in Peoria, you became the head chef at this brand new, really nice restaurant. Right. Yeah, right. No, I I, I got pretty lucky right off the bat. And you built, like, I remember you building that from the ground up, right? Yes, actually, literally helped building it 
from <laughs> yeah i remember when up, you were like putting up yeah walls, i laid floor today i tiled the floor i installed equipment it was really something <laughs> well so in this film we have john favreau who's the head chef of this restaurant and it opens up into this first scene where he's by himself and there's just music playing and he's very intent and very passionate about doing all these preps for this menu that he's building. And it instantly brought this authenticity to the film to me because it absolutely mirrored what you had described for me with the kitchens that you ran and the, the people that you had working for you and the creativity and focus that you had when you were building a menu. So I was wondering if you could just explain to everyone sort of that, that passion and that intensity and that creativity that goes into creating a menu when you're the head chef of a restaurant? Well, I think it, it all starts with understanding what uh, what the concept of the restaurant is, what your your end goal for the type of restaurant you have, along with, with what your target clientele is. You know, if your target clientele is, you know, a Sunday brunch crowd, you're not going to put a whole bunch of effort into, you know, reinventing the wheel for every night of service. But if you're, you know, the restaurant that we were talking about is was kind of a, a contemporary American, um, kind of a, a newer concept for the area. And so having that, it kind of gives you carte blanche in a certain, uh, certain aspect to do what you want and go the direction that you want to go because there is no set uh, template for what you want to do so you really just kind of see what pops into your head what makes sense and then go with what works now when you were building a menu i remember all of these crazy ingredients and like exotic salts coming to our apartment and you were really taking quite a bit of time and expending a lot of energy trying to create this menu. And is developing those types of recipes something that you enjoy and drove you to want to be a chef? Yeah, the the, the creation of, of dishes is what drives, I think, most chefs other than, you know, the day-to-day, -day, you know, rush, if you will, of, of service. But for the most part, it's, it's the creation, the actual I'll be more specific, the creation of the dish itself. Creating recipes is incredibly monotonous and boring and frustrating. But the idea, the concept of the, the finished plate itself is, is really what fascinates most chefs, I think. And what we have in this film is we see him go to markets and we see him shop for ingredients and sort of become inspired by ingredients to then create a particular dish. So when you were you know, preparing these dishes or trying to create these dishes, is that how you would go about it? Yeah, I think for the most part, and I, I think kind of what we talked about a little bit yesterday is it, it's kind of a puzzle. You know, you get these pieces, you see these pieces, and there's no, like I said, there's no template, there's no picture to go off of. So you need to decide how they all fit together. Now, what we get here is this film establishes very quickly that Carl is both extremely passionate and extremely talented at what he does. And we have a scene where a very famous reviewer is coming in and Carl is trying to explain to the owner of the restaurant that they're in a creative rut and they have to do something a little more exotic, a little more challenging to sort of bring up the prestige of the restaurant and impress this reviewer. Now, the owner of the restaurant is saying, no, we have more reservations than we've ever had. You need to cook what you've been cooking for five years. And they have this blow up have you ever had uh an instance like that with someone you've worked for oh god yes in this one specific instance uh, a restaurant a, a family-run italian restaurant i was brought in to to run the kitchen in uh 
in Austin, Texas. And uh, they brought me in because they were had been kind of the Italian-American red sauce run-of-the-mill kind of Italian restaurant. They wanted to branch out and broaden their horizons a little bit and bring in a little bit different clientele because it was a, in a fairly affluent part of, of Austin. So they brought me in and um, long story short, we were at about 10 minutes till uh, dinner service on a Friday night. The general manager just comes up to me and tells me that um, I need to throw away the specials that I made. I don't remember what they were at this time. Throw them away and start over again. Now again, this is 10 minutes before service. There's no time to start anything new and make it even halfway decent. So I just went up and I said, why? What's the problem? And he turned on his heels, put his finger in my face and said, because I told you to, boy. <laughs> and <laughs> By the way, for our listeners, Jordan is every bit of 6'4 and really just not the type of person that you're going to do that to. No, it didn't go over well. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, at this I point, admitted, I wish I was I there, though. Did not handle it well, but I think most per- people probably wouldn't. Um, <laughs> this is the far cleaner version of this story than I well, remember I you telling I me. By uh, the way, <laughs> I, I, I'm unsure of the of the language rules of, oh, of the interwebs. Uh, we we have an explicit rating. Okay, good. So he said because I told you to, boy, and. I very politely asked him, uh, what the fuck did you just say to me? And things were said that most would probably be considered offensive or unnecessary. Uh, I'm sure there were diners showing up for their early dinner that heard things that they wouldn't normally hear. Um, <laughs> but everything, you know, he was in my face. I was in his face. We didn't agree with what was being done. So I start nonchalantly, I toss my apron at him, told him I'm done, started nonchalantly getting my stuff together, got to a point where I was packing up my knives. I grab my knife to put it back in the case and everything, and and he comes up to me. He says, what, are you going to cut me now? And so, again, didn't handle this quite (laughs) as as, uh, professionally as I could have. So I put my knife, pointed it right in his face, and I said, if I was going to fucking cut you, we wouldn't have time to talk about it. And so I put my knife away, <laughs> told him to go fuck himself. And that was how that conversation ended. And as I told you yesterday, I was like, you got to keep in mind, this is the same restaurant that not a month earlier uh, bounced my payroll check. So it wasn't, uh, they weren't tops on my list anyway. <laughs> so you weren't too keen on keeping the relationship? It wasn't a lifelong partnership, I think. <laughs> well... When you told me that yesterday, it was just so funny because that exact scene happens in this film where there's just this huge blow up, this huge fight between Carl and the owner of the restaurant. And it was one of the reasons I called you to ask you, is that something that would really happen? And when you told me that story, oh my God, I thought we got to put you down and, and people have to hear this. So, you know, it just sort of, again, speaks to the authenticity of the film and the passion that head chefs have for creation and artistry and you know, that, that sort of conflict. And uh, just watching Carl do the things he does in this film reminded me so much of the passion that you have for cooking and creation. And I can't thank you enough for stopping by. I mean, you're a busy father, a busy schedule, different time Whoa. zones. <laughs> Whoa. Busy. I wouldn't call it busy. There's just there's pockets. <laughs> There's pockets of activity throughout the day. <laughs> well, I uh, I appreciate you giving us one of those pockets for this interview, and you know I, I hope we're talking to you again soon. All right, sounds good, bud. Thanks, man. So yeah, I think uh, Jordan was able to confirm what Jed and I thought about this film the first time we saw it, which was 
it's so real and it's so personal that those little uh, details that Roy Choi, the the restaurant guru who helped on the film, those details help bring this film alive. Yeah, absolutely. That interview was was great, man. Thank you, uh, thanks Jordan for for doing that interview because uh, it really does show that this is true to life. This whole this whole thing. He did his research. Well, not only did he do his research, although it seems that John Favreau forgot to actually point a knife at the restaurant owner. Um, but hey, to each his own. Hey, I'm sure there's a deleted scene somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I also wanted to get into real quick before. Um, we get where the uh, where he kind of gets you know fired from the restaurant um, is that his son introduces him to Twitter because um, this review goes viral. So that's kind of one of the catalysts for for the movie is not just a few people read this review. It goes viral. Everyone's retweeting it. He asks his son about it, and he yes he says to his son, "Okay, sign me up for Twitter." Um, I mean, he asks the guys in the kitchen as well, and they tell him that Twitter is. Wow. Is it good? Yo, big dog. Yeah. Fuck Twitter. Fuck Twitter. Again with the fuck Twitter. What, what, why, why should I fuck Twitter? <laughs> you're not on Twitter? No. What, you're getting too much pussy? Is that the problem? It's gotta be, right? <laughs> what does Twitter have to do with pussy? <laughs> have you not heard of the term social networking? Yeah. But that's what it is. It means pussy? Like pussy, or like getting tickets to something, or Ash finding out about a new band, or shit like that. that kind Anything of that requires a database. So pussy requires a database? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's for that too. I I'm, I don't know personally, but I guess it can be for that. <laughs> it, it, maybe it is for Bobby Cannavale. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So he gets him set up on Twitter, and what happens is he thinks he's giving a private message to the to the critic, but it's actually a, a tweet that goes everywhere, and this burns this whole back and forth between them, and so now he's going to have the big showdown at the restaurant. And so he decides to go to the restaurant and he wants to cook this brand new menu. Dustin Hoffman, Riva um, will not let him do that. This fight ensues and Carl goes back to his house. And I would say this is the uh, this is the Rocky four of cooking montages. I mean, this definition of rage cooking, 100 <laughs> percent. No, I 100 percent agree with you. It's it is hate cooking to the max. And it looks delicious, by the way. A side note for you people who may not have seen this film yet. Eat something before you watch it. Otherwise, you're going to be uncontrollably hungry. <laughs> 100% but true. This this sort of uh, cooking in his apartment is trying to get him to release this stress or hopefully get him to forget about what's happening at the restaurant. And he can't give it up. And he ends up going to confront uh, the restaurant reviewer who's played to perfection by Oliver Platt, which, again, any filmmakers out there... Uh, burgeoning filmmakers that might be listening to this podcast if you want to make your film better you put oliver platt in it that's a there's a funny story there too because i heard an interview with someone and uh he said that whenever he's with oliver platt and he's like yeah i'm writing something the first thing oliver platt says before he even asks what it's about is where's my part (laughs) that's his response to everything so and he's worth it because oliver platt is is amazing i do want to say I do want to say that in the uh, rage cooking montage scene, uh, the song choice is the same one from uh, the Spike Lee movie Twenty Fifth Hour, and it's so well used. It's just it's so great. I don't know. I just I, it sticks out to me every time I watch it. Yeah, the songs 
as well as the score in this film are perfect for each scene. It's it's one of those films that every sequence was so well thought out, and even though the scene might only be a minute and a half long, every single piece of it is meticulously placed in the right spot, and it all adds up in the end to a perfect film. It really does. So after this blow-up and he decides to return to the restaurant, we get, I think, the best scene in the film you get Favreau confronts Oliver Platt and just loses his mind. And and this scene serves two purposes. One, it looked very cathartic for John Favreau on a personal level. It's one of the most personal flip outs you've ever seen in a movie. It's sort of reminiscent to Jerry Maguire's freak out when he lost his job, except for the fact that this one's way better, but it also allows us to get to rock bottom and figure out where we're going with the rest of the film. It also does explain to us what a molten lava cake is. Uh, let's just let's just hear what Favreau, sorry, Chef Carl Casper has to say on that. Chocolate lava cake is not just undercooked chocolate cake. That's not what makes the center molten. You take a frozen cylinder of ganache and you set it in the ramekin so that as the outside cooks fully, the inside becomes molten. Okay. Okay. It's fucking molten. See, it's fucking molten, you asshole. And you don't do anything. What do you do? You sit and you eat and you vomit those words back to make people laugh. You know how hard I work for this shit? Do you know how my whole staff works? What sacrifices make to make you happy and then you just smugly just fucking shit on my shit? It hurts. Yes. It fucking hurts when you write that shit. It hurt you. It does. It does. He was, he thought he was going to close his fucking restaurant down. You asshole. Yeah, it is fucking molten. That's right. As a side note, I do love chocolate lava cake. Oh, so do I. So good. It actually so pissed good. me off when I watched this film, and he ruined two of them. He really did. He grabs the he grabs the one from the other person's plate. That's hilarious. Oh, I would have been pissed. Oh, my God. I don't share food anyway, but I would have been pissed. Oh, you don't? Maybe we can have someone on the podcast one day that can attest to that. No need. <laughs> no need? Okay. All right. Um... So, yeah, so after he hits rock bottom, uh, he's got to talk to a publicist, which was, I thought, one of the funniest scenes. What do you think about that scene, Cole? Oh, it's so good because I guess when you have pull in Hollywood and people like working with you, you get to get, uh, you get phenomenal talent for these smaller parts. And Amy Sedaris comes in as this publicist. And it is just outrageously funny because Carl absolutely does not understand why his world is falling apart. He's either too vain to figure out why people don't just let him cook and eat what he serves them, or he's too dense to figure out that the internet exists as a thing. But when he's arguing with her to like take this video down, or I just need you to get me a job, I just want to cook, and she responds with, I can get you on Celebrity Chef or Hell's Kitchen, Hell's Kitchen or I whatever believe, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and he, the look on Favreau's face of just absolute astonishment at, how stupid he thinks that idea is is priceless. Yeah, well, he's an artist. Artists don't go on Hell's Kitchen, evidently. So it's uh, it's it's really it's really good. I guess it's the celebrity big brother of cooking. So he's decided he's not going to do that. And one of the things in this movie that I think is really nice is throughout these gigantic uh, plot pieces that we've been talking about, there have been smaller scenes where he has gone on his visitation visits with his son and they've either gone to a farmer's market or they've gone to a, a movie and, and spent some time together. So unlike that traditional trope of 
the deadbeat father just doesn't show up to pick up the kid for the weekend or, you know, when you're in one fine day and the mom's always making excuses because the dad's a musician and has to go do a gig or whatever that might be. What we have here is a dad who's not doing all of the things he should be doing, but he's not doing those things while spending time with the son. And I think that's probably more realistic in certain circumstances. So it also allows us to like Carl because we see him trying, although we look at him and say, you're missing these big things that you need to be seeing. Yeah, it's an afterthought to him. His son is always, oh, I have to go pick up Percy or uh, let's go to the movies. Let's go to Third Street. Let's go to Pacific Park. You have a fun day today. Okay, great. Let's move on. But Percy, unlike many kids, I would argue, really wants to connect with his father and really wants to learn about him and what cooking is and what his interests are. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking when you see those scenes because Percy plays it very well in terms of he's not yelling at his dad. He's not rebelling. He's just like, can't you see that all I want to do is just spend time with you? Well, and the amount of times that he says, oh, we can't do this. Can I go to the kitchen with you? Yeah, I'll go to the market. Yeah, I'll do these things with you. Like you said, it's it's heartbreaking and it's subtle. And, you know, I think I may have liked MJ Anthony's performance of Percy maybe a little more than you did, but I, I feel him playing a passive aggressive kid as opposed to the, again, classic archetype of angsty yelling child who's, you know, freaking out on their parents. Whereas he plays a realistic 12 year old who's like, dad, I just want to be around you. So it also allows us to want this relationship to move forward because it doesn't feel forced. You just feel like Carl needs a nudge in the right direction. Yeah. And that nudge has been kind of hinted at throughout the film because uh, Carl's ex uh, Inez played by Sofia Vergara has been hinting that he should get a food truck. And basically if he wants people to eat the food that he's going to make, and that's their only choice, then he needs to control every aspect of it. And I think the easiest way to get into that arena is a food truck because he can control the whole thing. He can, it's on the move. He doesn't need to buy a restaurant or buy a lease a space or anything like that and really have a staff. He just needs to do that. And so that seed is planted in the beginning. And now that he's lost his gig and he has no idea what to do, Inez says, why don't you come to Miami with Percy and I because we're going to see uh, my father and... I think there's someone there that can maybe help you get started with the food truck. Well, and Inez is by far uh, the smartest character in this film. Heads and shoulders above everyone. She has her shit together like nobody else in this film. But she also decides once we get to the part of the film where it's time to inch into act two where Carl, we got to figure out what Carl's going to do. She takes him back to his roots. She says, let's go back to Miami. I want to see my dad. I want to get Percy to see my dad play in this, uh, you know, musical group that he's in. And they go to this, you know, little Havana in Miami and they get back to where Carl was happiest, where they were happiest. And they say, or Inez says rather this Cuban sandwich you're eating. Yours are better. Yours are better than this. Why don't you, you know, you should be cooking this kind of food. I think people would eat this kind of food. Yeah, she's totally integral in giving him the confidence that he needs to do this. And, uh, you know, as they say, you know, behind every great man is an even greater woman. Maybe that's just my quote. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't think it is. You out there, Rachel, you hear what I'm saying? That's that's the truth. Um, anyway, sorry about that. So she's basically given him this idea and She's been forming this idea since they were back in L.A. And I think she knew where everything was headed with him. And she knew that this would be the way to go. And the interesting part is where he ends up getting that food truck from. 
<laughs> I mean, she. I love that she sends him to her ex husband, mm-hmm. played by Robert Downey Jr. to absolute perfection. And this is one of those scenes where, in probably a bigger film, they got a little more recognition. This could have been borderline Oscar nomination worthy stuff, where he's only in it five to seven minutes, but damn near steals the entire film. So when he's walking Carl in. They they have this booty scene where he's got to have booties on his feet, and it's just funny. Even though it's an easy joke, it's funny. <laughs> he's sliding all over the place. And then once they get into the office, Robert Downey Jr. looks like a douche, I think is the easiest way to say. You know, he's got the deep V and the button-up shirt, and he's got the egregious necklace, and he's looking at this beautiful woman who's his secretary, and, you know, he says this. She's pregnant. Just found out. The, this one? Pissed on a stick, came in, laid it on me five seconds ago. Is he, so it's yours? That's what she's saying. You know, I know. I got a problem because she's best receptionist I've ever had. Yeah. Good news is I had my tubes tied in 08, so clearly she's also a fucking liar. I don't know how you beat that. I'm not sure how you beat that. Yeah. It's. I don't think you can beat that. I don't think that anyone can give a better delivery of that line. No, he was born to play, oddly enough, not Tony Stark, but this role. That's who he was born to be. But at the end of it, he gets out of it and he says, hey, Carl, uh, I don't think you're a loser, even though Carl's telling him, I, I don't think I am either. But he ends up giving him this beat to shit food truck uh, out in the back of one of his warehouses. Yeah, we see that he gives him this really piece of shit taco truck. And I mean, we said it before that he started at the top and now he's at he's at rock bottom. And literally this food truck is the definition of rock bottom. He has Percy helping him clean it out. We got this nice montage of them kind of bonding and honestly getting into the first conflict that we've seen between them where they both kind of exploded each other. And it makes their relationship stronger as a result. And who arrives but the third person that really completes this whole thing, John Leguizamo playing Martin, he said, hey, you call me, let me know what your next gig is. I'm there no matter what it is. Carl calls him, says I'm doing a food truck here. He's there before you know it. He's down in Miami helping him. And I, I know the first time I saw the movie, I was thinking at about this time, man, they really got John Leguizamo in there to not really do a whole lot. And when he showed up, I got so excited. Oh, me too. I was I was smiling from ear to ear because Johnny Lex is just, he's the greatest. He's never, again, he's on that list with guys like Oliver Platt who've never been bad and you always want more, but I always also wonder is the strength that you don't get enough? Is that what makes me always want to see them more? Cause even in, in, you know, movies like the Lincoln lawyer where he's the bondsman, you're sitting there going, I could use a little more of him. I really could. Yeah. I felt the same way in two Wong Fu. Thanks for everything. Julie Newmar. That's a podcast we're going to have to do. Yes, it definitely is. And I, I can't wait for that one. Um, so basically, they go out and get all the stuff uh, that you need to create this food truck. They get all the appliances. And he gets Percy a, a, his first chef's knife. They've He's bought him all these things, taken him to movies. This is the first time I think Percy really appreciates something that he's given him. And their relationship has just grown already. And they basically... Start cooking on this food truck for the uh, for the guys for Marvin's guys that uh, are helping them put the thing together, and they realize, hey, we got something here. We've got some good food. 
this has we can we can plan something here. We can actually do this. Yeah, this this is where the the plan sort of comes to a formation, and they decide the three of us we can really get this done. And the initial plan was just to sort of drive the the truck back to L.A. and start it in L.A. But then they decide, you know what? Let's make a let's make some stops. Let's make a trip out of this and let's see what we can do. And this is where we get into the traditional road trip movie. And they don't do anything that's terribly different than any other road trip movie. But it goes to show you when something that is uh, normal to you or something that you've seen a hundred times is done really well, it still works. Yeah, the chemistry amongst the, among the actors, the length of the shots. I'd say other than what would you say, maybe about ten seconds of this whole film, and especially this beginning sequence, is the only part that maybe could be cut. Yeah, I would definitely get rid of the Russell Peters part, or at least reduce the Russell Peters part. It's fine, but it does it ekes on a little, about fifteen twenty seconds too long. And I get it. He's he's kind of famous now. He's viral famous. Because of the freakout video uh, from the reviewer that you know went nuts online, but it, Russell Peters really plays it a little too long, and it's fine. It certainly doesn't ruin the movie at all. But every time I see it, I'm like, 15 seconds too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. And Percy is basically his head of marketing because Percy's man in the Twitter, the Facebook. Uh, I can't remember if Instagram was around at that point. I think so. I think he's got the Instagram on there, and he's just he's doing it also. As they're on the road here, they go to South Beach. Percy gets all these people there. They hit up a couple other spots. I mean, New Orleans. What can you say about New Orleans, Cole? New Orleans is great. I remember feeling very much like Percy felt when he was like, I would just want to get a beignet. Because the first time I went to New Orleans, it took me about 25 minutes to park the car, check into the hotel, and walk over to Cafe Du Monde and just murder half a dozen beignets. They are that good. So if you're there, go to Cafe Du Monde. It's worth the wait. But... The New Orleans scenes are great. This is where, again, they bring in the music of everywhere they're at. Uh, the, the food looks phenomenal. The The shots look phenomenal. The way that uh, Favreau frames things in this film is really well done. Because, again, I think he's trying to accomplish so much in scenes that don't have a ton of dialogue. It's really a lot of walk and talks without the talk. But you start to see the formation of the relationship. Uh, with Percy and Carl. And then when they get back, there's another huge line. And I think that that's the line where they understand, holy shit, we really got something here. You know, Percy knows what he's doing. We've got a huge line of people. We can really make a run at this. So they go from New Orleans and then they make it to Austin, which is where I get the hungriest in the film because they pull up to Franklin's barbecue. I mean, and that bar, that brisket, I mean, I just, I want that every day, all day. It looks so good. I mean, we also have the Cigarette Burns uh, smoke team. That's true. And we try to make brisket. It does not work out. I get really tired because we're up all night and I got to man the heat. I mean, that that's a whole other story there. But what I also love about what you said earlier about making the most with, you know, limited um, ingredients and people and all that kind of stuff is that to me is a metaphor for him getting back to some smaller independent films like this one. And other directors have, have alluded to, if you give me a $150 million budget, I have to spend that money. But if I get a smaller budget and it's more intimate, then I'm forced to, to be more creative because I have to make more on less. And I think that's what he's definitely talking about here and showing us with, with the food truck. 
Well, he got famous with swingers. Now, I don't think he had to do any permitless shooting like he did in swingers where they would just go into a bar and shoot a scene real quick and then run out with having permits and things like that. But you see a lot more of that guerrilla filmmaking or that at least aesthetic of guerrilla filmmaking in certain scenes in this film. I've heard him actually talk about swingers a few times. Have you? Does he does he like talking about swingers and how that got made? Since he made a television show called Dinner for Five, where all he does is sit around and talk about swingers. Uh, yeah, he he's fine if you ask John Favreau questions about swingers, he'll answer them. Uh, that being said, Dinner for Five was a really fun show to watch. Oh God, it's so good. I think you can get those episodes on YouTube. Maybe only season one is available somewhere for streaming. But uh, anyway, I digress. The Austin scene is great and we really see him connect with Percy. We do. Completely. And the sad part about that is is just when they're connecting, Carl says, "Look, this has been great, but this is like summer vacation, man. We're getting back home, and if I got to really lean into this food truck, I'm going to be working all the time and I may even have less time for you than I did before." But Percy's like, "I can work on the food truck like after after school and on on weekends. I can I can be a part of this. You know, you said I was good in the kitchen." And Carl's like, yeah, but it's, I just don't think it's going to work out. And it's your, your heart broken all over again. Yeah. It's, it's hard because you've been watching this relationship form and get stronger and how proud he is of his son and how much the son wants to emulate his father. And, you know, all of those themes that that are so rich throughout this sequence in the film. And then it's almost like watching two characters. It's like watching Zach and Kelly break up. At the max, you know, it's just heartbreaking. Fuck you, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah, Patrick Muldoon is not welcome on this podcast. So, you know, once they start making their way out of Austin, and another thing that I hate to keep using the word authenticity, but one of the things that they do to add that element to this film is they go to Franklin's Barbecue. Aaron Franklin is a world-famous James Beard award-winning chef. He makes the best brisket in Texas. You know, the musicians that they have, they have Gary Clark Jr., as the guitarist at the music festival, you know, these sorts of things add to the realism of the film. And it, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to get celebrities to be in your films, but they don't do it in a ham fisted over the top way where they just look like cameos. It looks like one chef going to another chef to get some food and it it just works. And it's just so natural that that feeling carries over through the rest of the film. But anyway, they get out of Austin, and that's when they start heading home. Yeah, and we get back home, and we see Percy's been making this, uh, the entire movie is basically summed up in these one-second clips, which is a really touching scene, and Carl realizes that he can kind of have it all, and having it all means have Percy work there with him and have the food truck. And so we basically see that now he's on the food truck row where, you know, whatever, a Friday night, there's all these food trucks lined up. Inez is working the truck with him. And just when we were forgetting about him, because everything looks great, Oliver Platt comes back. Yeah. And this is something that I think is interesting because while at the very beginning of the film, I'd say in the first 10 or 15 minutes, you understand he's at the top, he's going to fall. His intensity is too much. He's ignoring his son. This is just that classic, you know, hubris setting up for a gigantic fall. So you know that he's going to end up jobless or embarrassed or something. But when we're walking back up the film in the third act, you don't know where the top of the mountain is. And I don't think that Carl knows where the top of the mountain is. So that's the really interesting journey. And once you get to Food Truck Row, you think you found it. 
at this food truck where he's in there. He's working with Inez. Maybe they're back together. Maybe they're not. He's got his son working with him. He's bragging about his son. Everything looks to be going great. And you think that's the top of the movie or that's the top of the hill. And then Oliver Platt turns the corner and wants to have a discussion with him. And then you start realizing, oh, my God, what the hell is going to happen now? Yeah, and it's great because it sets up this awesome exchange between Carl and Ramsey, played by Oliver Platt, where Oliver Platt's character gets more rounded out. What exactly are you doing here? I'm uh, eating the food. I'm eating your food. I thought my food was needy and cloying. Well, I, I didn't think you'd want to serve me, so I sent somebody else to pick it up. What happened between us? That really knocked me for a loop. I mean, you robbed me of my pride my career, my dignity. And I know people like you, you, you don't usually care about that kind of thing. It's not necessarily true. But you should know, it hurts people like me. Because we're really trying. You started a flame war with me. Are you kidding me? I buy ink by the barrel, buddy. What are you doing picking a fight with me? I wouldn't challenge you to a cook-off. I thought I was sending you a private message. I didn't know that. I thought we were having fun. It was theater. By the way, what the fuck were you cooking? You totally shat the bed, buddy. How could I back that? You were one of my early boys. I had no control over the menu. Whatever the case, okay? You seem to be cooking for yourself again. Because this shit is sensational. I mean really, really good. Thank you. I'm not gonna write about it. I understand. Because I'd like to back you. So now you see where he was coming from. He thought they were playing a game and he didn't realize it was as serious as uh, as Carl did. And uh, it's just it's it's good because, as as you said, Cole, you think he's at the top of the mountain, but there's an even higher peak he can get to. And then we fast forward to six months later and Ramsey's backed him and he has El Jefe restaurant. Carl and Inez are remarried. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the fucking movie to end. I feel like I no. want to watch more of it. I want to see that next movie. I just want to see the next hour and a half. It, it's this movie leaves you on such a, a high and it's, it does that rare thing where there's really not an truly unlikable character in the film. And usually films that are that way don't work. The last one that I can remember is Cinderella man. I'd say that's as close as you get to a, a movie that has almost no unlikable characters. Cause even when, you know, Jim Braddock is fighting the monster in the ring at the end, the monster comes around, you know, and he's, you know, you see that he's just doing this sort of as a show, even in this, you think Ramsey Michelle's just an asshole writer. And then it turns out, no, he's not. And he's incredibly likable. And like you said, I just want to keep watching it. I'm shocked that you would pick a Russell Crowe film to allude to. Yeah, that might happen once or twice as this <laughs> podcast continues to mature. But I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and that's this movie just wraps up in a tidy little bow, which isn't always my favorite thing to have happen in a film. But it everything, everything in this movie works. And I don't want to be pun heavy again, but it just the ingredients go together perfectly in this film. And it's great. But as you said earlier, there's a ton of backstory to this that you know far more about than I do. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you kind of read up and, and listen to some interviews with John Favreau because he's had quite an interesting career. As we said, he wrote Swingers. He wrote the movie Made, which is kind of a loose follow-up to Swingers in many ways. And uh, he directed Made. And he also wrote Couples Retreat, which 
not a great film, but I don't really think the script was the huge issue there. It's 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 fine and it's yeah. funny and it's got some some good dialogue. He's done Dinner for Five, and I think his biggest thing was he directed the first entry into the MCU, which was Iron Man. And I think that experience, I've heard Jeff Bridges talk about it, where they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. This is the first movie. The MCU is not what it is today. This is the first thing. So this was almost like a, a student art film in a way. So I think he had a lot of freedom there. And I don't think Marvel and Kevin Feige were, were definitely putting all these, like, you got to put this in there, you got to put that in there. So when he came back to direct Iron Man 2, he didn't have that same freedom. And I think the art suffered as a result because I honestly personally think Iron Man 2 and 3 are pretty weak films. Iron Man 1 is a great film. 2 and 3, very weak. And I think after 2, he even is on record as saying, you know, it it gets kind of tough because they want to work into this whole universe and you don't have that freedom where you can do what you want and have the same freedom you had in the first one. And after Iron Man 2, he was signed up to direct Jersey Boys, and then Clint Eastwood comes along, and it's a Warner Brothers movie, and Clint Eastwood's like, I want to direct that. So John Favreau doesn't have anything to do. So just like Carl was in the film, where he said, I always have something lined up, I always have a next step, this is the first time he didn't really have a next step, and Chef is just a direct response to that and to the struggles that he had with studios and the business of making films. What do you think about that, Cole? Oh, I'm I'm 100 on board with that. Uh, I think when Jersey Boys, because I remember reading that he was extremely excited to do Jersey Boys, which I am a fan of the musical. I thought it would have made a good uh, movie adaptation. It's sort of set up that way, the way the musical's written. And not only did Clint Eastwood take that from him, Clint Eastwood took it from him and took a gigantic shit with it. And so. <laughs> I think also having Favreau watch someone take that away, someone ruin it, and he had to sit back and say, how have I not earned the credit to do what I want to do? How have I not earned? I did Iron Man. I've done Swingers. I've shown I can do small. I can do big. I have vision. How has that not been proven yet? And I think you're 100% right in thinking that this is a response to that particular uh, experience for him. And you know what? I'm glad he had it because this is a phenomenal film. Yeah, and there's actually a a quote. It's a little long, but I do want to read it because I think it hammers home the point. So this is uh, John Favreau. The thing that draws a chef to open a food truck is what drew me to doing a film like this. You have to answer to nobody. You are making everything yourself by hand. You have limited space, resources, but it's a small enough scale that you can express your voice purely. And if you succeed or fail, it is completely reliant on what you're putting out that window. There's a certain excitement and exhilaration you get from that, especially when you're used to working on bigger movies or working as part of a bigger system in a restaurant. When you're a cog in a wheel, even if you're a creative cog, you're you're still having to consider a lot of different things because you're serving commerce first and foremost. In this one, if you have a food truck, the worst thing that happens is you run out of gas. On a small movie, as long as I can be confident that I can make money back to the people who did it, and I put out a movie that I really feel connected to, which I do, it's successful. It's really been a wonderful way of taking your car out on the highway and flooring it and just seeing how fast you can go. That's the feeling when you just don't check your creativity at all. I think he hits the nail on the head. There's no sense for me to expand on that. He absolutely nailed it. And this type of movie is one that you and I have talked about ad nauseum, not just Chef, but I came up with a theory when I was probably... 15 years old as I continued to just start consuming film. And while I absolutely love movies that try to achieve a great 
artistic sort of new frontier. Those are the types of movies that shoot for Oscars and shoot for Golden Globes and all of these gigantic awards and, and you know, films like Aroma or films like A Schindler's List or, or those types of movies. But what Hollywood got away from, and I think it's because, you know, a lot of this has to do with how the Weinsteins started thinking awards are the only things that matter. And that really bled into a lot of Hollywood's thinking uh, starting in the mid 90s is they got away from making movies that I call Maverick movies. If you remember the movie Maverick with Mel Gibson, and it's hard to use this film as an example because what Mel Gibson has turned into is just awful. But I have to use this movie as an example because it absolutely uh, sort of summarizes exactly what I think Hollywood needs to make more of, which Maverick had James Coburn. It had, uh, you know, Mel Gibson, it had Jodie Foster. It was all these stars, a brilliant soundtrack with catchy tunes. It was written by William Goldman. It, it had Richard Donner produced and directed it. So you've got talent in every place, but there's absolutely not a single thing about this film that was trying to achieve anything greater than making sure the people who watched it had fun for an hour and 45 minutes. And that movie just seems to not be getting made anymore. I think Chef is a very good example of that. I don't think anybody who was making Chef was thinking we have to put this element in or we have to have this kind of a scene because we need to get nominated for anything. And more Maverick movies need to be made. I don't see that happening. I can't wait for it to happen. But these bigger stars, you know, your Leonardo DiCaprio's, they just wait for one movie every two years. It has to be a movie that's going to get me nominated for an Oscar. And if it's not, then it's not worth my time. Whereas you used to have big stars, your Tom Cruise's Mel Gibson at the time was on top of the world in 95, just coming off Braveheart. They make those kind of movies, or they at least used to make those kinds of movies. Um, and chef, like I said, is a phenomenal example. So you'll probably hear me referencing the Maverick theory a lot because that's really when it comes down to watching movies, my favorite type of film. Yeah, they're great movies, and they're self-contained, and they're not to set up an entire universe, you know? And, like, Percy didn't need to have a heroin addiction. We didn't need that in the movie, no, so we didn't it wasn't that. there. <laughs> no, we, we absolutely did not need that. And to your point earlier about the first Iron Man, I think the first Iron Man is a good example of a Maverick movie. I mean, obviously at the time, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't who he is today, but Jeff Bridges certainly was Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. um, people still really liked Robert Downey Jr. and always knew he was talented and you get good music, good effects, a good story and it was just Iron Man's just a fun film. It shouldn't have been nominated for best picture. It's just a really fun film. So, uh you know, to be a Maverick movie, you don't have to be a small contained independent film like Chef. You can also be a gigantic, you know, 100 million dollar budget film like Iron Man, but uh, so going off of the Maverick theory, Jed, do you have any recommendations for people to be able to watch movies sort of in that vein? Yeah, I do actually. Um, one of them is the movie called Mother. It's the Albert Brooks one, not the Jennifer Lawrence, Darren Aronofsky one. Uh, it also stars Debbie Reynolds as the title character. Albert Brooks co-wrote and directed the film. It's just for anyone who has a mom out there, you will enjoy this movie. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, another one is Lost in Yonkers. It's written by Neil Simon, is all I'm going to say. Richard Dreyfuss and Mercedes Rule are great in it. It's a movie I don't think a lot of people uh, have seen. I don't think it did that much business when it came out. 
it's another Maverick film and it's it's excellent. Um, another one favorite of Cole and mine is Waking Up in Reno, which is definitely a film I don't think many people have seen. But you've got Billy Bob Thornton, Patrick Swayze, Charlize Theron, and Natasha Richardson, and they are so good in this movie. And this movie is so excellent. I can't praise it enough. I don't want to tell you anything about it. Just fucking watch it. It's hilarious. It's batshit off the reservation funny. The premise is so simple and bizarre. And just understand that you're getting ready to watch a film that has Natasha Richardson almost having an uncontrollable attraction to Tony Orlando. What more do you need from a film? I mean, you've got Patrick Swayze saying the quote, there's too much blood and alcohol content. (laughs) I mean, it's too perfect. And the last film I have uh, to recommend is actually a Best Picture winner. Oscar Best Picture winner is Marty, written by Patty Chayefsky. Just go see it. It's so good. It's black and white, but who fucking cares? It's just an excellent, excellent film. My girlfriend, who does not like black and white movies because they feel dated, loved it. So there you go. Cole, do you have any Maverick films for us? I do. The first Maverick film I have is Maverick. If you haven't seen it, shock go watch it. I've already described it. You know what it's about. Go check it out. It's it's so fun. I've probably seen it 15 times. It's great. Uh, my second one is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, you got Kevin Costner at the height of his powers. Morgan Freeman's in it. Alan Rickman, who's the best villain I've ever seen in anything. You have Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, who was ex- in extremely good films at the time. Uh, you have a great Brian Adams song. Again, that's another component, I think, to Maverick films where you have a really catchy tune. I mean, that song was number one forever. You had Christian Slater in a great uh, sort of supporting role. And this movie gets shit on a lot because they worry about English accents and was the accent consistent. Get the fuck over it, okay? This is a great movie. Go watch it. Uh, The last one is the Disney version of Three Musketeers. I think I may have just wanted to put an Oliver Platt film on here, but <laughs> I love this movie. This is such a good movie. This has got Chris O'Donnell back when he was going to be the next big thing. Charlie Sheen, pre-us knowing how crazy Charlie Sheen was. Pre-Tiger's Blood? This is pre-Tiger's Blood. This is absolutely, this is pre-winning, pre-Tiger's Blood. Um, Kiefer Sutherland, who sort of goes all out in a dramatic turn for this Disney film. Uh, Tim Curry, who's hilarious and evil. And again, another one, it's got a great song in it. Uh, All for Love, I believe, is the title of it. But it's Rod Seward and Sting and Brian Adams get together. And uh, it's just, these are fun films. And I loved it when I was 10, and I love it now. And you guys got to check it out. I hope you enjoy it. Um that is our episode for today. We've covered Chef, I think, in depth. Uh, we gave you some recommendations. Please let us know what you think. Go on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Also, you can hit us up on Instagram at, at SigburnsPod. That's C-I-G-B-U-R-N-S-P-O-D on both Instagram and Twitter. Or email us at CigaretteBurnsPodcast at Yahoo.com. We'd love to hear your movie reviews. We'd love to hear movies you want us to see. And trust me. We're going to try and continue to make this thing better, but the only way we can do that is you guys letting us know what you like, what you don't like, and we'll uh, we'll respond in kind, all right? So we'll see you next time. 